Hi there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Some Other Sphere. If you enjoy it, please leave a rating on your preferred podcast platform or like and share it on social media, as it all really helps to promote the show. If you'd like to support the upkeep of the podcast as well, you can donate via Ko-fi. Go to ko-fi.com forward slash some other sphere podcast to find out more. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at spherical underscore pod. Thank you again. And now on to the episode. Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time. Hosted by Rick Palmer. For this episode, my guest is art historian Emily Leon. Emily's research focuses on modernism and the esoteric interests of late 19th and early 20th century Western artists, with a particular concentration on abstraction and the links between art, science and religion. Since 2017, much of her scholarship has focused on the social, spiritual and theoretical implications of Swedish artist Hilma af Klint's work. Most recently, in 2023, she presented Past Future, Present Future, Future Future, Hilma af Klint in Three Temporal Dimensions for the Modernist Futures Conference, hosted by Modernist Studies in Asia. Emily is also the founder of the Transdisciplinary Working Group In the Eggshell, a five-part lecture series that seeks to redress modern art by turning to how the sciences, religious beliefs and occult traditions provide a better articulation. In the interview, I begin by talking with her about the origins of the relationship between esotericism and modern abstract art. From there, our conversation moves on to Hilma F. Clint specifically the occult ideas that influenced her art, as well as the unusual methods she used, such as spirit channeling, that were a vital aspect of her craft. We also discussed the deeper meaning of Afklint's artwork, and the vision she had for how it was meant to be displayed, before concluding by talking about Emily's own efforts to encourage a better understanding of the relationship between modern art, science and esotericism with the In the Eggshell lecture series. Our conversation was recorded in April 2023. Enjoy! Emily, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. To begin with, just talk a little bit about your background and how you got interested in this area of art history. Sure, yeah. So my academic training um, is in art history. However, my research practice is quite peripatetic. So I also write and publish on sound and orality. And um, as an art historian, my research concentration is modernism and the esoteric interests of late 19th and early 20th century artists with a particular concentration on abstraction and the links between art, science, and religion. And since 2017, uh, much of my scholarship has really focused on the social, spiritual, and theoretical implications of Swedish artist Hilma Off Klint's work. And I'm also the founder of In the Eggshell, an esoteric working group 
that I started in 2021, which is a transdisciplinary seminar and reading group that provides a landscape view of the spiritual dimension of modern art. So we pay particular attention to the historiography and the methodological choices that have shaped an understanding of modern art and spirituality. And um, as a day job, I work in the Visual Resources Center in the art department of Williams College in Western Massachusetts in the United States. Excellent. So when it comes to the relationship between modern abstract art and the esoteric and the occult, I get the sense that that relationship goes back quite a bit further than is generally agreed upon the when abstract art itself sort of became more prevalent. Yeah, I mean, I think the historical relationship between modern art and spiritual and occult ideas is interesting because so many modern artists were influenced by the spiritual currents, um, even if only tangentially. So, for instance, many artists coming to maturity at the turn of the century were influenced by a pastiche of occult or esoteric traditions from Freemasonry to Rosicrucianism, spiritualism, theosophy, uh, spiritualism and theosophy being sort of the dominant ones, um, anthroposophy, alchemy, esoteric Christianity, etc. So this type of spiritual syncretism influenced so many artists, I think some on a more general level, to seek a higher order of knowledge um, that was often obtained from inner and personal revelation. So I'm not sure, you know, um, exactly uh, uh, about, I guess, what you're saying about, you know, um, maybe it's starting earlier than, you know, what's written in the historical historical record. I mean, certainly um, there's been a esoteric and occult influence on many artists uh, way before modern art was defined as a category. Mm. And did those artists consider their work abstract or is the term abstract used because it was sort of a a connection to a a more modern way of of doing art, essentially? Uh, Abstraction was sort of born out of what was initially non-objective art. So this this artist sort of divorcing themselves from more formalist sort of approaches to uh, artistic production. Um, So I I think that abstraction is loaded and has many definitions, but in the history of art, if you're thinking about framing something or framing um, modern art in particular through the lens of formalism, that's to focus on, to to emphasize compositional elements. So color, line, etc. And abstraction is more or less just sort of divorcing uh, yourself from um, more mimetic types of painting. Right, yeah. And as part of my research for this episode, uh, I read a little bit about Georgina Houghton, who was a medium and an artist. And I, with, with someone like that, did they did they see any sort of divide between their art and their faculties as a as a medium? I mean, 
in general, do you find that the art is just a part of what they're trying to achieve on a, on, in, a, in a number of ways? Uh, for some, yes, I do. Um, I mean, I think that for mediumism in particular, it's really interesting because, you know, Hilma of Clint was also a medium and she had a, a group called the five that regularly communed with the spirits and they produced hundreds of automatic drawings that, you know, we could arguably consider them abstractions because they're, you know, not uh, sort of mirroring the natural world exactly. But I, I think that's a little complicated when it comes to mediumism because there's, there's sort of multiple hands at work. And what I mean by that is you have what lies in the physical realm, and then you have this sort of otherworldly influence that, that that's working through the physical body. And so there, there's multiple things um, being negotiated, I, I think, and, you know, call that conscious, call that non-conscious intentionality. Um, I just think that they were producing what was in the moment what was happening. Yeah. And, and so with Hilma Flint, um, I, I read that she was, she was influenced by uh, theosophy, one of the movements you, you mentioned a little earlier. And was that influence sort of direct? Did, was, was Hilma F. Clint a, a theosophist or was, was it more that she was inspired by the ideas that theosophy contained? And more so the latter, um, inspired by, um, you know, what was contained therein. And, you know, later in her life, she became more interested in anthroposophy. But, um, you know, she was, you know, at sort of esoteric Christianity and theosophy and anthroposophy and um, there is so many different influences um, on these artists. It's hard to to sort of narrow it down to one particular um, sort of philosophy uh, outweighing another one. All right. Okay. And uh, just uh, again, going back, you, you mentioned the five there. I, can you talk a little bit about about them? That seems to be a a, a crucial element of of Hilma Arf Clint becoming the, the, the artist that she did. Yeah, I think that the five, the, the mainstream sort of art world, I think has grabbed on a little bit more uh, to Hilma Arf Clint's involvement with the five in recent years. Um, when, the Guggenheim show in New York City, Home Off Clint Paintings for the Future, uh, went up in 2018. It was my impression that at that time there wasn't as much of an interest in what her and her seance group had produced. And I think that has a lot to do with the sort of parameters of 
art history and what counts, uh, such as this sort of focus on paintings over um, works on paper. Um, but I do believe that, and, and this is relatively known now, that there's uh, Hilmoff, Clint's work, for me, can kind of be seen as a continuum. So from her academic work, her more naturalistic or portrait paintings to the automatic drawings that her and her seance group produced collectively um, to her abstract paintings um, because you can kind of see this uh, symbolic kind of trajectory happening where everything is just kind of building upon everything else. So some of the symbology that you see in the automatic drawing, you also see that carried over into the larger paintings, but, um, you know, clearly with more intention. So certainly what she was producing with her seance group and even before that would have been a major influence on her sort of artistic development. Hmm. And do, do we know much about the actual process itself in terms of the seances and then the creation of the art? Yeah, so... So their meetings started with a prayer, a meditation, a sermon, and then finally um, an analysis of one text in the New Testament followed by the seance. So that was how they began. And it wasn't always Hilma off Clint that was producing the drawings. It could have been other members in the group as well. Right. Okay. Yeah. And do, do we know much about where, where the, the spirits that were being channeled, what, and their influence? Do we know if they had, did they have identities? They did have identities. Um, but I mean, outside of, they contacted spirits that they called the high ones and uh, they did have specific names as well. But outside of that, we don't really know a whole lot at this point uh, about those spirits in depth. I'm sure over time, some of that information will perhaps come to the fore a bit more because her archival materials are still being mined at this point. And there's so many handwritten and typed pages in the archive that have never, they're not translated into English. So they're in Swedish and um, some of them are in German. So I'm sure over time um, that we'll, we'll continue to learn more about Hilmoff Clint and her process and her life. Um, but, you know, I think that these are, these are things that are sort of years in, in the making. And 
uh, even now there's just new stuff coming out constantly about her and her close circle and, um, you know, just learning more about her biography and her visual revoir. Hmm. I mean, it's something else I'm, I'm interested in is the, when you, from your opinion, when you, when you look at the art of Hilma Afklint, especially the, the big paintings, um, <laughs> I guess this might be a, an odd question given that they are abstract, but when you, when you look at them, for example, some of them clearly have like very sort of pyramidal structures in them. Some remind me of, of something you might look at under a microscope. Like they almost, they sometimes seem to be like almost the fabric of existence. Like, or some, there are lots that seem to be focused on a, on a circular image, which remind me of the primordial atom or something like that. When you look at her work, do, what, what do you think that she's depicting? I mean, you know, she, it, <laughs> that's a, that's a difficult question, I think, because she's depicting, I, I, I struggle to, to speak for her, I think. Um, but from a, a viewer standpoint, um, she is absolutely sort of zooming in on uh, very small things or veiled things or uh, things unseen. So that could be atoms, it could be vibrations, uh, it could be, you know, uh, very small uh, life forms uh, like snails. Um, but, you know, that's just uh, sort of a minimal take, I think, on how much is involved in her work. So I, I do also believe that I just, I think that Hilmoff Clint's work really serves to bring forth a transformation in us and that her work is really operating as a continuum. So a space that really prepares viewers for their evolution through stages and cycles of rebirth. And I believe that the evolution of consciousness and human perception are major themes throughout her work. And she really explores evolution as an incomplete and always forming process of spiritual development. But, it, you know, I, I think that we should just really be grateful to have received such an immersive space for contemplation. Um, but again, she was producing, she was so prolific and was producing so many different series um, in her body of work that, you know, this is a, just speaking to her could be an hours long <laughs> podcast conversation. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely appreciate that. And um, something as well that I wasn't aware of initially is, is the is the size of some of these paintings and 
a lot of them seem to be a series as well. Did did they ever get displayed in the way that that she wanted them to? That no, they they have they have not. Um, and I think that you know some of these series include so many paintings as well, and the scale is just it's massive um so having a space you know she wanted uh a temple to display a certain body of of her work together um but you know again i think that although her work has been exhibited elsewhere in North America and Europe before the Guggenheim show in 2018. It was really that show that really kind of created this canonical explosion that really um, she, she blew up and has gained so much attention and uh, I think it's just going to take a long time for things to, to to really kind of form around her. Yeah. So when it comes to the appreciation of her work and her art, was it always a case that it was sort of not accepted by the artistic establishment from the get-go? In her time or after? So, yeah, from from the time that she was alive and and doing the, the paintings and then, I guess, after that. And I appreciate that's quite a long period of time. I just wanted to get a, a general idea of if her work was accepted at all um, or has it always not been the case because of its nature, I guess is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> So, so Hilmoff Clint, she largely kept her spiritual work, you know, close to the breast in, in her time. Um, but, you know, I think by 1919, um, and Julia Voss mentions this, uh, Julia Voss is the Hilmoff Clint's biographer, that Hilmoff Clint began to compile what Julia Voss has described as a suitcase museum. So that would have contained miniature watercolors of her spiritual works, including the paintings for the temple. And Voss uncovers um, Hilmoff Clint's two decade long attempt at finding a public space for her spiritual works. Yet she was met with resistance um, in her time and thus chose to preserve the works for an unknown future, which is, you know, some like to say that that, that future is, is now that we have arrived at the future that Hilmoff Clint was waiting for. But, mm, and so, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, you can go ahead. I was just going to say that uh, so when Hilmoff Clint talks about the the temple um could that have been her work 
displayed in the right way or is it or is it more of an esoteric concept uh, I'm, I'm just wondering um whether the, the temple is, is is happening now with this with some more appreciation of her work i mean i i think that that can be argued definitely i, I mean that's what that's sort of been the ongoing narrative around the the Guggenheim exhibition, right? You know, it, it uh, Hilmoff Clint had uh, wanted to show uh, the paintings for the temple in, in a spiral temple, and then you have them exhibited in Frank Lloyd Wright's uh, modernist uh, building that is shaped like a spiral. So, you know, you kind of have this uh, sort of serendipitous event happening. Um, and, you know, some like to say that, you know, that is the aversion of the, the spiral temple, I suppose. Yeah, that, that does sound like that. Uh, outside of the five, did she have... Um, any interaction with other modern artists who had similar influences at all? Uh, not to my knowledge, but as that part of her life, I am I am no expert on on that. Right. Okay. D- do you think that that her her life her and the the way that she created her art is? I'm I'm, I'm wondering. Not just because it's it's fantastic, but Hilmar F. Clint is the artist that seems to be an example of somebody who was not appreciated in their own time because of the esoteric and occult influences of her work. And do do you think she represents that issue in 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 microcosm? Um, I don't I don't think so, and I'm not I'm not entirely convinced that. Um, I feel like we don't necessarily have or haven't uncovered perhaps uh, a, enough information yet to to really say whether or not that is the case. I, I mean, we have Julia Voss's incredible scholarship about the suitcase museum and these miniatures uh, in, that included the paintings for the temple that sort of suggests and uncover that, yes, Hilmoff Clint was trying to find a public space and an audience for her spiritual works. And she, she couldn't quite get the spiritual works um, publicly displayed in her time. But I, I think it's safe to maybe assume that it that it was because of the esoteric component, but I don't think we have enough information or I certainly don't have enough information to say that with confidence that that's exactly why. But now it, it feels like there's a better appreciation of, of her work and, and other, other artists who, um, who created their work in similar ways. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm 
so over the last, I'll probably will say 15 years or so, the role of occult discourse or discourses on modern art has generally been accepted. But the study of spirituality in modern art emerged really slowly in art historical scholarship. And, you know, just as a kind of a little background, the the spiritual dimension was simply removed from serious discussion based on a 1950s model that framed modern art through the lens of formalism, which I mentioned earlier that is basically the analysis of a work of art that emphasizes compositional elements, so color, line, et cetera, and meaning that historical or social context was uh, completely removed. And I think that our understanding of the development of modern art in general and abstraction in particular is largely dependent on the institutional frameworks that shaped its image. And uh, mainly in 1929, the Museum of Modern Arts curator, Alfred H. Barr Jr., outlined the importance of abstraction and modern art in the form of a diagram for his exhibition, Cubism and and Abstract Art in 1936. And what his chart did, it was based on his definition of modern artistic techniques of the day, and it it essentially charted the origins and influences of modern art, a chart that concentrated on style rather than artists' personal biographies, and uh, hence omitted religious or spiritual context. And then in the 60s, you start to see that that exclusive model um, shifting. So one example would be Finnish historian Sixten Ringbaum, who published a revisionist interpretation of modern abstract painting in his essay, Art in the Epic of the Great Spiritual, a Cole Elements in the Early Theory of Abstract Painting. And his article focused on the intellectual history of the spiritual dimension in modern abstract painting. And he focused mainly on Vasily Kandinsky and the influence theosophical ideas, among others, had on his abstract works. But it wasn't really until the 1980s that an entirely new approach um, appeared, which would have been the spiritual perspective, paying particular attention to new content, so spiritual, utopian, metaphysical. And you see that happening in Maurice Tuckman's exhibition, The Spiritual and Art Abstract Painting, 1890 to 1985. But then even in the 90s, you don't really see it as much. And then, like I said, over over the last 15 years or so, it's wonderful that the role of occult discourses on modern art has generally, has generally been accepted. Um, I know that was a little long winded, but it's certainly, um, I think, despite this interest, I I think that what's happening now is, I I think it's safe to say that the art historical canon is being re-examined in in this particular moment and for the last several years. Um, So we know spirituality and the occult influenced many modern artists, yet 
our history has not quite developed an appropriate vocabulary or methodology to capture this relationship and the esoteric interests and exceptional human experiences these artists had, I think is still sorely underarticulated in the history of art. And I think that's what we see being grappled with now. Um, because if you just kind of zoom out and think about how institutional discourse has uh, helps to shape our perceptions of reality. Right. And so it makes me wonder how we get to a real honest esotericism within the constraints of these cultural institutions. And, and I think these, these are sort of questions that a lot of people are, are a lot of scholars, a lot of academics are thinking about like, well, what are we going to do with this relationship within an earthbound discipline like art history? Um, so, you know, like what would happen if we broke the pedagogical framework altogether? Um, you know, because I think that these sort of historical, methodological, and epistemological dimensions, uh, despite how we're trying to look more on the periphery and, and try to figure this out, they really remain beholden to North Atlantic particulars and, and normative practices within these institutional frameworks are essentially conduits of ideology. So I, I think that we're, we're really trying to figure out how the canon is, is you know, historically understood as embodying a certain set of values. And so how are these values changing or really beginning to vanish since the Hilma of Clint Guggenheim show. And, you know, like what are these dominant discourses that are being circulated by institutions of power and what is being said and what is being published and what is the focus and how do we need to, to, to think about this differently? Hmm. Yeah. So do you think that with an artist like Hilma of Clint and her work being being properly displayed and and properly appreciated is that is that indicative of the art world being more actively interested in in the esoteric and, and the occult influences of her work or is it more an appreciation of her talent and and what she created i think i think both hmm. I, I think it would be would be both um you know, because, because she did work in series, I think that there's a massive amount of respect there to, uh, to, to keep that work displayed uh, in, in the way that she wanted it to be, uh, to be understood. And, you know, her, her work is also... Um, not at auction it, it, it's not up for sale so the the series can't be broken apart as well um and i i definitely think that there is an interest as well 
um, on the materials that she used, the, the size of her works, um, her sort of unconventional uh, way of painting in her time. You know, she was, she was working on the floor because her, you know, typically you, uh, artists would have been working uh, with an easel, but she was producing these works on the floor, which was very non-conventional and uh, pretty forward uh, for her time as well. But also just the size of those works would, it, you know, working from an easel, it, it just wouldn't have been possible because of the size of these works. So I think that there is uh, a lot of respect and a lot of interest in her for myriad reasons. Hmm. And, and in the mainstream as well. I mean, as we do this interview in the end of April and there's a, an exhibition at Tate Modern, which has just recently started with the work of Hilmar F. Clinton, Piet Mondrian. And I, it seems to be being well-reviewed in the newspapers, but there's still that sort of inability not to be slightly smug about the the more esoteric elements of it, I find, in the, in the British press anyway. I, I mean, I remember a review which could have sort of described her interest in the in the esoteric as occult dabblings, which is a little insulting, I think. It's more, way more than that. But it seems there is, there's still this, this resistance to accept that this artist was interested in in the occult. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean... <laughs> You can't necessarily get around uh, <laughs> the things that come out in the mainstream. Uh, I mean, it was, it, it's going to happen with every exhibition, I think, but I've seen it so many times <laughs> over the last several years. And, you know, kind of, I, I think that I can't speak for everyone, but I, you know, I'm sure that there still is a, a sense that um, the sort of esoteric or occult elements are uh, not everyone is going to take that seriously. And when you're thinking about mainstream articles that ooze certain phrases uh, asserting uh, certain things, I, I mean, you can't really, it's not like, it's, I'm not, I don't want to uh, say anything horrible right now, but I mean, it's not like there's rigorous uh, scholarship hap happening when these uh, reviews are being written necessarily. You know, maybe you'll read an exhibition catalog essay, maybe you'll read some other literature that's been published. Um, by by other journalists and you know you get just enough information to uh, meet your word count and then move on yeah yeah that's a really good point um I just wanted to move on to what you mentioned at the beginning of the interview your, your own uh, working group in the eggshell and I just wanted to talk a little bit about that and what that what's that what that's about? It sounds really interesting. Yeah, of course. Yeah, thanks for thanks for asking. Um, so I think some of the things that we've sort of been talking about today, and 
you know, this goes beyond Hilma of Clint for me personally. Uh, I have an invested interest in um, methodological pluralism. And so I started, um, because I'm sort of working through my own thoughts about how fraught disciplinary art history is. Um, I founded in the eggshell in 2021 for, as a model for this type of methodological and epistemological experimentation. And it's essentially um, provides a landscape view of the spiritual dimension of modern art where I'm paying attention to the historiography and the methodological choices that have shaped an understanding of modern art and spirituality. So with an interest in disciplinary inclusion and methodological pluralism, the series aims to sort of redress modern art by turning to how the sciences, religious beliefs, and occult traditions can perhaps provide a better articulation of modern art. And so collectively, myself and the participants, we explore analytical tools and interpretive models that can sort of embody new ways of knowing and thinking and new epistemologies. And for me, it's really an exercise in collective and multidimensional thinking and the group is informal, it's more interactive, and it's open to anybody. So you don't have to be an academic, you don't have to be a scholar of this uh, particular kind of content to join. In fact, I encourage um, a sort of diversity of backgrounds. Uh, participants in the past have been some PhD students in art history, some in literature, um, architecture, uh, undergrads in religious studies programs, visual artists, composers, and that just makes for a much more rich and interesting conversation, that dialogue being opened up between practitioners and fields of study that traditionally engage infrequently. And so uh, it's uh, initially it was five sessions, but now it's it's four and there's pre-readings before each session. And then I give a sort of mini lecture and then we all uh, discuss the particular topic for for that uh, for that session. Um, you know, so really just kind of stressing this importance of discursive interaction. And discussing that with an intimate group of participants. It's just a really lovely and charming experience. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So um, with that in mind, though, you talk about occult traditions there. Are the ones that we've discussed earlier on in this conversation mediumship and channeling are, are those examples of traditions that are helpful in in articulating 
a discussion on modern art from different perspectives? I think so. But, you know, I'm also thinking more about the one thing that I've been thinking a lot about actually recently was, and, and I find this kind of, well, well, we'll just put it this way. And I think this kind of parallels a little bit uh, of what you're asking. It might be completely uh, going down a different path, but in, in 2013, um, scholar Nina Kokokinen, she published a fantastic article titled A Culture is an Analytical Tool in the Study of Art. And one thing I love is her interest in redescribing uh, artists, we'll say, such as Kandinsky, and arguably we could include Hilmoff Clint here, as seekership-inclined artist, which I absolutely love. And I think that describing artists that are operating under the influence of religious and occult practices as seekers rather than abstract pioneers sort of removes them from the reductive nature of context categorization that's embedded in so much of art history, survey courses uh, in particular. Well, Emily, this has been a really fun conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. If people want to find out more about you and what you do, how best do they do that? Let's see. Um, They can actually, I think that following my Twitter account is probably the best way. I am pretty horrible about keeping up with my website. So it is at disincarnate evil, uh, D-I-S-I-N-C-A-R-N-A-T-E E-V-L. Cool. Well, I'll, I'll make sure to include that information in the show notes. Thanks so much. Thank you, Emily. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Emily. I must admit, I felt a little out of my depth with this subject matter, but Emily really knows her stuff, and the interview definitely left me with plenty to think about. If you would like to read more about the In the Eggshell lecture series, you can find details at Emily's website, desertsuprematism.com. Please also consider rating this episode wherever you listen and sharing it on social media, as it really helps some other sphere to grow and find new listeners. You can follow Some Other Sphere on Twitter and Mastodon and subscribe on most of the well-known podcast platforms. You can also support the upkeep of the podcast with a donation via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at SphereHQ, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, be safe and well, and I hope you'll join me again soon for another episode of Some Other Sphere.